Grab a hold of a Bible. Uh, make your way this morning into the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Sunday mornings, we're making our way through the book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians verse by verse, and so we're excited to be there this morning. We want you to be there with us, and so hoping you brought a Bible. If you didn't, there are Bibles in front of you, in the chairs in front of you. Grab hold of one of those with a page number on the screen, uh, joining us in that space. If you want to use an electronic device, a Bible app, you're welcome to do that as well. One way or another, we're inviting you to the Word of God. That's true here in the sanctuary. If you're joining us in the overflow, if you're joining us online, same invitation. Grab a Bible. Join us this morning in the study so that God would speak to us through His Word. Once more, we're really making our way verse by verse through this book, but I thought I would point out that for this week and the next you know, two or three weeks, we're going to slow down to a crawl. Uh, we're going to make our way very slowly through a section that deals with spiritual warfare, deals with some things that are there, and I'm excited to do so, but I thought I would point it out as we begin it this morning and explain a little bit why. One of them is just simply put, like, I really want to know more about this. We're about to be in this, one of these sections that I have found help in over the years and excitement over, but if I can be altogether honest. There is a space that's like, I know there's more there than I understand. I, I want to understand it better. And so I was excited to just pour in more time into the study. And so for my own soul, I'm looking forward to this, but that's not all it would be. I mean, if that's what it would be, I certainly wouldn't make that uh, our journey as a church. But I have a sense as I was desiring it, that the, the Lord was just kind of communicating. That's what he had for us, that this is a space over the next uh, few weeks that we just want to look on this and see it and just pray that God would do good into our lives, both in understanding it, but in some of the reality that's there. So we're, again, going to slow down, make our way very slowly through just a few verses. And partly because of that, I thought we'd do something we do every now and then. There's no sense that we're going to do this all the time, so don't either understand it that way. But sometimes one of the good things to do is to take a moment and just read this together as we invite you to stand. So I'm going to ask you to do that. Would you grab your Bible and stand? Uh, stand, uh, you know, in one sense, just to hear what we're going to cover this morning. But I'm inviting you to stand physically, but I hope it would make sense. I'm inviting you to stand in your heart, that there would be a space where you right now would just, just with respect, honor, and, and, and appreciation towards the Word of God, just allow it to be that which we want to submit to and see. So with that in mind, I want to just read that with you. You can follow along, but just allow even its authority just to ring into our lives now. Verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into the captivity, into the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Let's ask God to do that. Father, right here as we stand and just take a moment to reverence your word, would you give us ears to hear it, understand what you have for us? Would you work good and change and transformation in our lives? We ask for it now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. 
It was April of 1775 in that midnight ride of Paul Revere that some of you know well from history. True story in history, it was more than Paul Revere, but it was a singular moment that was definitive in the life of our nation. The, the, the British were coming. Uh, war was getting ready, but nobody knew when. No drones in those days to, to, to look out and see that. And so the only way they could know was this. And when the British began moving, Paul Revere and others like him carried that message throughout the colony saying the British are coming, like the war is starting now. And when that just resounding voice was heard, the American colonists rallied to the cause, you know, grabbing their weapons. And really history says that was one of the definitive moments in the American Civil War. And it was partly because they were ready. They were ready for the battle. They were ready when it happened, and they had their weapons, and they engaged into that battle. They engaged into that moment in a way that was good and right and absolutely just, just worked effectively into our history. With that kind of template as a thought, I want to ride the ride of Paul Revere this morning before you. I want to make a sounding just voice that would tell you there's a war. There's a war. There's a war that's around us and before us. There's a war. And, and I want to invite you both to hear that and see it, but to be ready and to respond. And here's the question for this morning. If, if you believe me, if you hear me, how would you respond to that? What weapon would you grab to be ready for that. Oh yeah, there when Paul Revere rides that ride, they, they reach out, they grab their muskets, they have their powder, they, they meet the battle there. But what would be the weapons that you would grab hold of if you believe that there's a war before you? What is it that you would grab hold of? That's what we want to think about as we look at this text this morning. We're going to focus just on that thought on the weapons. The weapons that are there for our warfare. Let's notice it again, just so you see it in the text. Verse three, it says it this way. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. Pause there. That's what we want to talk about, just that small section here this morning that would help us think this thing through, and we begin thinking about it and maybe just highlighting once more, there's a war, but it's not a physical war. It's a spiritual war. There's a war that is happening around you and before us and in us that finds itself definitively different than maybe we might think. It's a spiritual war. Now, it is a war. Uh, without spending much time, I will just point out the word war, warfare here is not a singular word as if speaking of a one-time battle, but an entire campaign. It would be the idea of looking at a long fight that is in there, and certainly that's what's there for us. But maybe one of the things that we need to grab hold of is it's an invisible war. It's an invisible war. Our text just told us that we live in the flesh, but we don't fight in the flesh. We are human. I like that. One translation says it that way. You know, we are human, but we don't fight in a human way. It's not that kind of battle. It's not one that can be won on that realm of warfare. It's not that way at all. So the war that we're fighting, it isn't that 
which is visible here. It isn't that which we can see with our eyes. That's true. The war that we're fighting, it is a defensive war on some aspects. It is a war that we are called to stand. Now, we see that here, but we see that throughout God's Word. In fact, in one of the most uh, significant passages that speaks about this warfare is in Ephesians chapter 6. Most of you know it. I thought I would just read parts of it because certainly as we're thinking about this this morning, we want to think about that. In Ephesians 6, it would say it this way. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Hey, quick pause. That's everything we're trying to talk about this morning, that we need his power, that we need his might. So he's inviting us to see that. And he tells us, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Wiles has the idea of schemes, strategies that Satan has against us. He says you can stand against that. You can withstand his attack. In fact, he goes on simply to say, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's an invisible battle. It's not actually with people. People aren't really our problem. It's not politics. It's not power brokers in our world. Behind the scenes in our world, the things that are really changing and affecting things are spiritual. And he's inviting you and I to see that, that that is really the battle that we face. And he tells us, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So it is defensive in some ways. He's saying if you see the battle and you see what it is and you take up what God is offering, you can withstand it. You can stand against the onslaught that's coming, almost as if like this you know, avalanche of evil would be coming by and you would see it and yet prepared by God, you survive through it. I mean, like it, it, it comes, it hits, and it goes over and you stand. You're, you're still standing at the end of the day, even though Satan is real and his work is real in our world. Part of spiritual warfare is being able to not be destroyed by, by what Satan is seeking to do in our world and our lives. It is defensive. And so certainly as we think about this this morning and in a few weeks, as we, for the next few weeks as we think about it, we need help in that. May God help us to do that. But it is an offensive war. It isn't just, you know, so that we can withstand what's happening. There is a sense that we're seeking to, to move forward and see things move forward. That would be true in our own lives. I don't know about you. I read through what we just read, and I would recognize need in that. He says, if we could take this up, everything that is standing against the knowledge of God could be pulled down. And we could bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and bring us into a space of obedience and I don't know about you, but I look upon that and I think, mm, yep, I could use some of that. I could use some of what that looks like. And I love that this is there. And so partly he's going to tell us, hey, here's how you can do that. Here's how this can be one, how you could make spiritual advance uh, in territory in your own lives. And so certainly we want to think about how that would work and how that we do that. But let's also not miss it. It's not just for our good. No, this offensive battle that he's inviting you and I to be a part of, it affects others. In fact, it can do things in them that would be helpful and delivering and rescuing. 
That's actually the context. That's actually the context. So Paul begins here in this section of 2 Corinthians. If you were with us last week, we talked about it. There is an attack, an onslaught that had been happening there in the church in Corinth against Paul. Attacks against his character, attacks against his ministry, attacks against his ways, but it wasn't really just personal. It was really to separate them from Christ. It was really to get between them and Christ. And so for these chapters, 2 Corinthians 10 through 13, he's addressing it. And he's inviting us to see that. And in part, he's telling us that this warfare would be affecting them. Hey, go and see it. Go back a verse and notice it there in verse 2 where he says it this way. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as though we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Paul's indication is that when he gets there to the town of Corinth, if it doesn't fix, if they don't make this right, if, is, if they don't you know, kind of get their lives right before he get there, he's going to have to bring you know, some spiritual work into their lives, a spiritual battle that would affect them. He says, you know, we're gonna, I'm going to have to be bold. I'm going to have to come in and end and, and the, the, the warfare of Christ, do battle for you there. So what Paul's looking for would be affecting others. That's helpful. And for some of you, that's going to be the invitation in because that's what we want. I don't know about you. I don't know who you would put into that category this morning. I don't know if you'd look at it and you think maybe it's your friends or your relatives or your kids or your grandkids. And right now, you're deeply worried for them. You're deeply worried for where they are. And, and, and you would want to see them delivered. You'd want to see that good things happen in them. You want to go to war, if you will, for the good of their soul. Well, there's going to be help in this section that would help us see not only good in our lives, but how we can be, help good in others' lives, how that could happen through us. And so it's an invitation that it would be there, that there's a spiritual war that's affecting our world. He's inviting you to take up arms, to, to step into this battle, this Paul Revere ride that would say to you, hey, there's a war. And he's going to invite you to be a part of it. Not just to be an uh, you know, observer, not just to be someone who's waiting for it to pass by, but to be a participant in this. Well, to have that invitation, he tells us again very clearly, as we think about that war, he says it there in verse 3, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We need to talk about that just for a moment when we think about what he's inviting us to do. He's simply telling us the way you and I are meant to fight this battle, it's not to be a carnal fight. Carnal. That means human. That means our flesh. That means this idea that the way that you and I are meant to wage this warfare, it's not that. So what is that? What is, what is that? It's a, it's, a, it's a big piece of just understanding it. It's the way the world does things. It's the way the world fights battles. It's the way the world seeks to do that. He says that's not the means that we're going to adopt. Now, he doesn't give us a list there, but it might be helpful if we just give a little list. Not comprehensive, certainly not all of it, but just to make sure we're thinking through, so what kind of things would be the kind of weapons that he's saying, no, not that? That's not our weapon.
What would it be? Well, I think, first of all, it would have to be literally, you know, kind of a military, you know, just a tactic against this, this place where we're not talking about guns or knives or tanks or bombs. That's not the warfare we wage. And you might think, well, Jim, who's ever done that? Well, actually, Peter did, right? Garden of Gethsemane, there he is. Jesus is there. He reached out, grabbed a sword, and Jesus just told him, put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. It's a simple and and very real truth. And I could tell you, for any that know your history, and you know the last 2,000 years of history, there have been times where the church has decided to join with the world and use literally military aims to accomplish spiritual things where, you know, this, you know, conquering and and sending out just, you know, conquering forces to conquer lands and it it, will never actually bring about a spiritual effect. That's true for military things. We could even just widen that into the idea of coercion and simply say, hey, that's the way the world does things at times. It doesn't produce spiritual things. Now, I know that probably makes sense, but it's helpful just to think it through. Did you know you could probably get somebody to say a sinner's prayer with a gun to their head? You know, like, you're going to pray now. Okay, just don't kill me. Like, you know, you could literally, at the, at the point of a gun or, or at the place of a knife, force somebody to say the right thing, but it wouldn't be real. That'll never bring about spiritual work. That'll never bring about the real saving of a soul. You could change the outside. You could force the outside. But it will never bring about a true transformation. It'll never be that. You can't do it that way. You can't force it. Well, we could add to the list. Not only are we talking force, but I would say things like discipline and disciplinary actions that would take place. And in the midst of that, I would add organizational pressure that would do this. Track with me for a moment. Maybe it'd be helpful. It's helpful for me because I can still remember the lesson very, very well. As God had began calling me to be a pastor, I you know, found myself being just shaped in a lot of ways, ways I didn't know he was shaping me, but he certainly was. Uh, and as I was heading in that direction, one of the things that happened is I actually got promoted and I, I was working at the, at the bank in Albuquerque back in the days when it was SunWest Bank and I oversaw a department, I was a supervisor. And I can remember to this day, realizing what I was doing with my employees and how very different it was than spiritual. I mean, I can remember God just showing me and realizing as a supervisor in a bank, I could discipline people to get them to do the right thing. I could discipline them and make them show up on time. I could get them to do their job through incentives and discipline and organizational and structure. But through those things, I could never actually change them. I could never make them want to. I could never make them say, I want to be a good employee because I want to do what's right. I I want to, from the heart, do that. That the, the tools that the world gives, it can't accomplish that. It can only change the outside. It can only change behavior. And I can remember to this day, the Lord just speaking to my heart, just telling me, Jim, that is not what I want to do. That's not the way the church works. I am not looking for you to shape people's behavior. I want to change them from the inside out. I want to change them so that so it's not that they're just doing the right thing on the outside. I change them because they want to do the right thing. And, and it's flowing from the inside, and it's such a better way. And yet, sometimes, 
we can try to manipulate and cause and try to make people do what's right through exactly those kinds of things, whether it be in a family or even in a church structure, to try to force things to happen in people's lives, not because it's real, but just simply because it's demanded and working in those ways, and it doesn't produce the right things. So he's not calling us to those kinds of tactics. We would add to it things like personality, strong personality that would seek to shape or mold things, or manipulation that would go across in the midst of that. I would add to that things like credentials, where people would come in trying to make themselves authorities in some structure, and even money. Now, I quickly walk over those four and just simply tell you, if you've been with us in 2 Corinthians, you would recognize those are the ones that were at work there in the church in Corinth. That's exactly what they were trying to do. They were trying to come in and create some kind of credentials. They were trying to demean Paul and say, well, he doesn't have any credentials. They were trying to create structures and manipulate and use money and, and, and use personality, powerful personalities that would shape people away from Christ. And it's the way the world does it. It's the way the world does it. The world uses all of these things. It uses money to manipulate. It uses those things to control. And he's telling us, that's not our tools. That's not going to produce what we want it to produce. Let's add a few more. So it's not going to be politics. I know where we are. It's an election year. It's going to be a big year of politics. And let me say it right now. We should be good stewards of our vote. I mean, we, as, as citizens in this nation, should take that seriously. It's not bad to be involved in politics. It's not bad to do this. But politics will never save a soul. Politics will never actually bring about the change that our nation desperately needs. It cannot do it. it you, th this external force can never do that spiritual work. It is not our hope. Our hope should not be in that. It's not in politics. It's not in protests. Oh, you guys know, that's our world. In fact, it's been the world, even back in the book of Acts. Some of you have been with us recently. We've, we saw it then that people have this propensity to rally in large numbers, in crowds. It's happened. It's happened this week, right? Let me watch the news as people protest there, even in Washington, just kind of banging on the gates, kind of, you know, against what's happening there in Israel. And there's loud voices that seek to move and shape nations. And it moves people. It moves people. But that's not the way you and I are meant to fight. That's not the way the church changes the world. That we are never called to such tactics. In fact, we talked about that last week because we, Jesus said that's not the way he did it. It's not the way he did it, that he called us to realize that his yoke is easy, his burden is light, and he didn't quarrel in the streets. He didn't do those kinds of things. It's not the weapons that we're supposed to grab. I would add even things like psychology that would be a part of it. Hang on to that thought a moment, and I'll just say etc. Everything else like this. So let me come back and talk about psychology for a moment and quickly say, boy, I am not slamming that. I am grateful for the good, you know, common grace that's in our world that's found in medical doctors and at times it's found in those who deal with psychology. So if you're someone who, you know, is working in the realm of psychology or you have a psychologist, please hear my voice. I am not condemning you, but that will never save our souls. It's never the spiritual work. It's never those tactics that we grab hold of to fight the spiritual battle. All of these things, these worldly ways, most of them, if not all of them, have spaces where they work well in the world. And they can. 
That's the way the world works, and it's not always a bad thing. But when we're trying to do a spiritual work, these are not the things that we should lean on. To grab hold of these to try to do a spiritual work is incredibly ineffective. It would be like grabbing hold of a fishing pole or your hunting rifle and trying to fix the car with that. You know, there you stand over the engine. Like, what are you going to do with this? You know, I'm not going to do anything. It's like going in and grabbing hold of the air fryer and trying to vacuum the carpets with it. It's like, you know, that's not a bad tool. It just doesn't do this. Like, you're trying to use something that has no power here. Like, it doesn't work in this realm. To use these tools to try to bring about spiritual transformation in your life or others will never bring about a work of God, ever. Never do it. So part of it is to say we ought to be people that we'd recognize this and say, not this. Like, this is not to be what we trust in. We're not to rely on these carnal things, these worldly things, to try to do a spiritual effect. They're not the things that we grab hold of. But what are the things that we grab hold of? Well, let's go back and just read the verse one more time and see how they're described for us. There again in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. Mighty in God. Our weapons are mighty in Him. Well, that's what he's inviting you and I to understand. He's inviting us to see what that looks like. And there's a few things that I want to just quickly point out. So when he invites us to these weapons, like these are the ones you want to grab. If you hear that spiritual Paul Revere ride saying, hey, there's a war, this is the weapon that you want to grab. These are the things that, that, that you want to say, grab these, grab these for this battle. What are they? Well, it's worth noting for starters, it's not just a single thing. There are various weapons. We know that because he puts it in the plural. He doesn't say grab the weapon of God. He says grab the weapons, plural. There's more than one. That's just helpful. Again, maybe just for me. It certainly is helpful for me to think that thing through. We'll definitely talk about that more in a moment. But we're not talking about one thing. We're talking about the weapons that are of him. It's also worth noting they're powerful. They're mighty. That word mighty is a really fun word in the Greek language. Uh, it speaks of, uh, you know, almost a dynamic power. It's really where we even get our word dynamite from, which probably doesn't help because that sounds destructive and we're not looking to destroy anything. Uh, but the idea is it's, it's so powerful that it's able to accomplish, that it's something that you look upon it and say, I can do that. I can do that. Like that can accomplish this. That's exciting when we think about everything it just said. Tearing down everything against the knowledge of God, bringing thoughts into captivity, helping us live lives of obedience. It's just enough to say, hey, that's something that God's weapons can do. That's something that he can do. He's able to do those things. But they're mighty in him. They are God's weapons, that when we think about what this looks like, they are weapons that belong to him or of him, that are connected to him, that in one simple sense, without him doing it, it doesn't work. When they're his weapons, they're not things that the world could grab hold of and use. They are things that only God can do and we do by grabbing hold of those. 
So let's do the same thing that we just did a moment ago. We walked through and we tried to think through what kind of things would that be if we're talking about carnal weapons, what kind of things might this be? Well, before we answer that question, I want to just pause and make sure that we say, hey, this is a good question to ask. I think it's right to ask, but it's also just important to notice that's not what the text is actually saying. If that was the most important thing, then that's what we'd hear. No, the most important thing is we want what God's in. We want what's mighty in Him. That's the main thing. But what kind of things would that be? Well, here we go back to that passage in Ephesians that we were looking at a moment ago, because in that passage, God does give us a list. He gives us a list of seven things that are weapons that He's inviting us to grab hold of for that battle. He tells it to us this way, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might, which is what we just you know, taking up the, his mighty weapons, taking up the things that are powerful in him, the power of his might. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And then he gives us again a list of seven things, picturing them as armor, picturing them almost in a Roman soldier's armor. He says, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith by which you may be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And then he says, take the helmet of salvation, or Thessalonians would say the hope or the assurance of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Then he says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So it's a great list, by the way. It's a great list to think it through. Maybe you want to know more about that. We did that about two and a half years ago. Uh, we walked through it. We spent a couple months uh, just thinking through that in more detail. And so I tell you that if you want to go back and get that, it's online. You can get it on our website, you can get it on our YouTube, and go and do the whole kind of uh, strong in the Lord, His weapons. We obviously spent more time in it than we're going to do right at this moment, but it's worth just taking a quick preview. So seven things. Seven things that He says are available to us and they're in Christ. He says you need His truth. You need His truth. That is believing what He says is true over what the world and every other opinion is that his truth becomes that which we hold to, that we take up the righteousness of Christ, which we celebrated in communion a moment ago. If we're his, it's done. We're righteous in Christ. We're justified. To believe that, to hold to the righteousness of Christ is incredibly helpful. On top of that, we're supposed to be prepared to share the gospel. Always that way. That helps remind us of the world in which we live, but it is sharing the gospel. That is, we are people who are about the gospel. It not only is about the business, but holds us into that place of what we're doing. And so we're always to be looking at that, thinking that through. We take up the shield of faith, which is believing him. Believing God's promises over all the lies that the devil throws against us. We take up the helmet of the hope of our salvation. We know who we are in Christ. We have that sense of, hey, you know, we're, you know who we are and assurance of that. We take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and then we have prayer. Always praying. Now, there's bunches and bunches of stuff in that worth your understanding more than we have time to go into it. But in its simple way, he gives us seven things. That these things, these things are certainly 
weapons that God would give, certainly things that he would say, these are things which you have, and, and we need to think those things through. But let's ask another quick question. So in Ephesians, it, the picture that he gives is primarily defensive. Like, here's how we stand against Satan's lies. Very, very helpful. But in Corinthians, we're talking about going on the warfare. We're talking about affecting us and affecting others. So out of this list of seven, which of these weapons are offensive weapons? Well, let me just pause and say, actually, you probably need all of them. Like, I mean, it's not like, well, I don't need it. You know, no, we need all of it. Like, you're not going to be able to step into the battle without all that God provides. And so they're all good, but it's still helpful to think through, okay, what's going to affect others? What's going to affect others? What things are there? There are probably three of those seven primarily fit into that category. The first is the gospel. The first is the gospel that changes people's lives. The gospel, the good news of salvation that does that. Think about it in 1 Corinthians where it says it this way. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know, every time I get up here, I want to make sure to share the gospel. Every, time, every Sunday, every Wednesday, we try somewhere in the midst of it to make sure that we highlight, hey, the main thing. We, we have a message that is Christ. It's often at the end of the message, which isn't a bad thing, but right now I just want to give it right in the middle of the message so it's kind of maybe not the normal place you would think about it. And just say, you know, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, the gospel can change your life. The gospel can, can, can it's the power of God for salvation. What's the gospel? The gospel is that God sent his son, that Jesus came because you couldn't fix yourself, because you're broken. Your sin has destroyed you, and God so loved you, he sent his son to die on the cross for you. He died on the cross, paid the entire price of your, of your sin, rose from the grave, conquering it, inviting you to life. And the Bible says if you would believe that, if you would believe that and appropriate that into your life, you can be saved. You can be saved. Now, the funny thing is, it's really, really true. Maybe you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus. You might hear this and say, how is a story of something that happened almost 2,000 years ago supposed to change my life today? He says, it seems foolishness to those who are perishing. It just, like, how is that gonna change anything? But if you would surrender to it and, and be saved, you will find it's the power of God. This is where God's power pours out this is where he changes lives and souls. And I would invite you to believe. I would invite you to believe in the gospel. I would invite you to believe upon Jesus and be saved because that's the only hope for your soul. It's really, really good. And it's powerful. It is powerful. That can change lives. And so I offer it to you this morning, but then come back to our list and say, hey, that's something that can change other people's lives. We want to see people change. It's the gospel. It's the gospel that is that. On top of that, we certainly would think about the Word of God. If we were to think about the metaphor that Paul gives there in Ephesians, truly the sword is the most offensive weapon in the whole thing, right? I mean, uh, you know, you, the other things give you protection so you can stand, but if you're going to, like, you know, do something, it's going to be the sword. It's the most offensive weapon in the midst of it, and that's true. That when we think about what the, the Bible is, it would do that. In fact, one of the passages we'll definitely come back to in weeks to come is the one in Hebrews where it says, for the word of God is living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God's word is, did you catch it? Powerful. 
It is mighty. It is able to do what? Change us from the inside out. Bring every thought into the captivity that's in Christ. Begin to change us there at the root of where we are, which is what we need, which is what we need. This God's word is certainly part of that. It's certainly one of the things that we want to take up. But if we're looking for another, I would add to it prayer. Now, prayer is a part of what God does in others. But interesting enough, he actually includes that in the way he says it there in Ephesians, showing that prayer is actually a part of these other things being effective. He would give it to us this way, that as he lists out those you know, six before this, he says, hey, we're also praying with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me, Paul says, that the utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. He says, I, I want to see people changed. I want to see people changed by the gospel. And I want to give that gospel, but I know this, I need your prayers. That, it's, that the gospel is, is powerful, but it works through people praying and, and praying that the words would land, that people would hear it, that lives would be changed. So it's not one thing all by itself. It's the gospel. It's the word of God and those who are praying and seeing that take place. So we're thinking about all of this. It helps us to begin to understand when we think about the weapons of God, it's not that we just grab one. I mean, it's why we need, we need them. We need, we need what this is to do the battle. So let's go back to that passage in Corinthians now. And so we're thinking it through. We've added those seven to our list, but without spending a bunch of time on it, I still don't think that's comprehensive. What other kinds of things might be in such a list that God would do a work in our lives and others? Well, I would say the supernatural work of the Spirit, the Spirit of God who convicts us and leads us. There's dynamic work in the midst of that. Love that he does that. I would say sometimes God does the miraculous things, uh, that God does something that, you know, in a moment that could never be accomplished any other way, and it's part of what he does in the midst of the battle. I would add to it worship. I could give good cause to carry us through even passages in the Bible and show how worship at times turns back the attacks of the enemy and in powerful places in the midst of it. And it's enough for me just to say, yes, <laughs> like those things and more, but those kinds of things, these are the things that God's doing. These are the kinds of things that God is in. These are the kinds of things that depend, if they're going to be working, are what he's doing. So again, that's not a perfect list. It's not a complete list, but it does help us to get closer to it. But let's go back and make sure we're just focusing on what this text is telling us. And once more, I just want to tell you, it's not just one thing. It's not just one thing. Now, this may just be for me, and I'm almost embarrassed to walk you through it, but it might be helpful for somebody else. See, here's my problem. I like this text. I like what it is. But over the years, I got to be honest, I have had the propensity to read 2 Corinthians 10 as if it was one thing that we're talking about. And for me, I would often think about that one thing as prayer. Now, hear me as clear as you can. Prayer is powerful. Like, we should pray more. Like, we, we, need, we need to discover more of what that looks like. And there's nothing I'm about to say that would diminish that reality, but here's where it landed for me a while back. I was reading this passage, and I just was thinking about my prayer life. And I thought, you know, is it, could it be that just I'm such a terrible prayer that I need to pray better? That's probably true, by the way. I, I need to grow in prayer, 100%. But I found myself thinking, have I ever seen you know, high things that are exalting as God destroyed just because I prayed. 
Have you ever seen people's thoughts taken captive to the obedience of Christ because I just prayed? Have I ever seen you know, somebody walking now obediently because of my prayers? And I had to kind of look upon that and think, I don't know if I've ever seen that. I mean, maybe it's been there, and it could be, again, that I just I need to learn how to pray better than I do. I do. I want that. But I was thinking about that, and then I began to think through, have I seen the Word of God do that? Have I seen the Word of God that was given prayerfully, prayed for, someone was reading? Have I seen the Word of God tear down things in people's lives? Uh-huh. Have I seen thoughts brought into captivity of Christ? Yes. Have I seen people begun walking obediently? Yes. And it just was one of those things that just helped me to say, okay, wait, it's more than one thing. That if I'm wanting to see something go, I, I should be praying, but it's, it's going to be also spaces of sharing the gospel. It's going to be places of communicating the gospel. It's also going to be places of communicating the word of God and believing that God's word can do what I could never do. It's got to be more than one thing. That's helpful for me. It's helpful for in the way I'm understanding this passage, and it's going to be helpful, I hope, in the weeks to come. So it is not just one thing. It is God's things. It is God's things. But they are powerful. They can do this. They can accomplish that. That's, again, hopeful. But maybe the main thing that we need to understand this morning right now is that we need God to do it. If this works the way it's supposed to work, it can't be us. It has to be Him. That's, that's what defines things that are mighty in Him. So I found myself trying to get close to this, and there's a quote that A.W. Tozer shared. Uh, it's one of my favorite quotes. I love it, and I hate it. it. destroys me like every time I read it. And so, again, just thought I'd share it with you. Let it destroy you as well, or at least kind of do good, I hope, in your life. And he simply says it this way. He says, if the Holy Spirit were taken away from the New Testament church, 90% of what they did would have come to a halt. You read the book of Acts, and you would say, if the Holy Spirit didn't do it, it wouldn't have happened. And there's so many things that, that just were dynamic and power and God and moving and, and he needed to make it happen. If he wasn't doing it, it wouldn't have happened. And then Tozer just simply said, but if the Holy Spirit were taken away from today's church, only 10% of what it does would cease. Like, ouch. Like, ouch. I mean, how much is that is true? How much of your Christian life how much of what we're doing as a church, if the Holy Spirit just took a hiatus and said, you know what, just thought I'd let you guys do your own thing. How much would go on without a hitch? How much of what we think is ministry is just, you know, going through some motions without really seeing him move in, in might and power? Well, I think it's dangerously true that it could be so, and he's just simply saying that is not the life we want to live. We want to live a life that if God doesn't come through, it doesn't work. We want, we want to put ourselves in a place where we're saying, God, we want to see you move. And if you don't do it, it's not going to work. It can't happen any other way. It needs to be God, and God is inviting us into a life that it would be. I long for that. I long for it for me. I, I long for it for you. And it's certainly what we want to think about this morning and begin to just let that be where we land. So I want, to, I, want to, I want to take you on a journey right now that would think about that. Uh, we're not closing yet, so don't, don't, don't tune out. Don't, 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 don't close out yet. But I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story that, for me, illustrates this in a way that I hope would be helpful and, and maybe clarifying. Hey, the story is a biblical story. It's the story of King Asa. He is Solomon's great-grandson. Solomon's great-grandson, he takes the throne... Uh, of, the, of Judah and a, a time in history, 
and he begins really well. We think about what that looks like. We think about how that, that plays out, and it simply would give it to us this way. It says, and Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. That's really good, by the way. That's like the high compliment in the book of Chronicles. Like, you know, what God says about you is what matters. As Asa did what was right, like he is pleasing to God. He removed the altars of the foreign gods and the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images. That's what we want to talk about in 2 Corinthians, right? We want to tear down everything against the, that, that's against God. Tear about anything that is, you know, defying him. Asa did that. He was tearing it down. And then he commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and commandment. I mean, this is good. He's like, he told the nation as the king, you guys need, you need God. You need to seek him. And we need to obey his word. And that's what's happened. And for 10 years of his reign, things go really well. Peace is upon the land. There's revival kind of happening in this space. This heart of, uh, of Asa is affecting the entire realm. People are turning to God, turning away from their idols. It's a really good moment. But 10 years into it, they get their first real opposition and trial. It tells us that Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots, and he came to Merishash, to, to, to face down Israel. Right in the verses before us, it lets us know that the whole army under Asa is less than half of this, and they're not nearly as well armed. They have no chariots. They, they're not ready to face this. They are outnumbered. Uh, they are outgunned. It's bigger than them. It's an impossible war for them. But Asa faces it, and he cries out. He gathers the people, and he cries out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. Simply put, God, nothing's too hard for you. Uh, it doesn't matter if we have a lot of people or, or, or just a few people. You could work either way. It's not really about us. It's about you. And it's about what you are. And nothing is too hard for you, God. You could handle this. And so he simply cries out, help uh, us, O Lord, our God, for we rest on you and in your name. We go out against this multitude. Oh, Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. It is a great prayer with incredible details, but he's crying out for God to work. He's leaning on it and saying, God, we're, we want to see you move and don't let man be you. Like you show yourself strong, God. Do this in an incredible way. And God does. God does. The, the Lord strikes the Ethiopians. Uh, before Asa and Judah and the Ethiopians fled, it's a definitive moment as they are defeated really supernaturally. I mean, it shouldn't have happened. It does happen. It's miraculous. It's this moment where God just on their behalf helps them to, to find success and, and wonder in this moment. And so as they kind of have this moment of doing well, God sends a prophet to speak to them. It says, now the spirit uh, of, of so the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Obed, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. So this prophet comes up and he says, Hey, I want you to hear me. Like, everybody listen to me now. Hear what I have to say to you. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. It was a powerful reality, a warning that's given all the way through Scripture, by the way, true then, true now, and he simply invites him to it. And he goes on and says, it hasn't always been this way. 
There hasn't always been a teaching priest in Israel. Sometimes people, you know, the history of where we've been has been up and down. But whenever we turn back to God, he hears us and he just pleads with them. Hey, this is a moment to trust God. Like, be strong now. Be about this now. And they do. The reforms of Asa continue to move across the land. They continue to turn and cry out to God. They continue to trust in him. And for the next 20 years, it's a great time. It's a glorious time of living there in Judah, of God's people seeking him, of God's favor upon him. And I wish I could tell you that that was the end of the story. I wish I could tell you that's how it ends, but it's not how it ends. If you know the story of Asa, it goes differently. In the 36th year of his reign, Basha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Not to get too confusing, but Israel split into two nations now. It happened after Solomon, so there's the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. That northern kingdom is never godly. Uh, They are always carnal and doing badly. They now try to oppress. They now try to step into this place where there's a godly remnant, and and they're bringing in opposition. So the war is there. The oppression is there. Again, another challenge. And Asa responds. Tells us Asa brought the silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord. So he goes into the money that people gave to God. He goes into that which was set aside for God and takes that money takes his own treasures from the king's house, and he sent it to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who dwelt in Damascus, saying, let there be a treaty between you and me. He makes a political move, uh, a political kind of connection, an alliance with the Syrians in this moment, and says, hey, you should break your treaty with the northern kingdom, and if you break their treaty, uh, they're going to go back from me, and here's the sad thing. It works. It works. It's exactly what happens. He sends all of this money uh, up to Syria. Syria breaks their treaty with the northern kingdom. Basha pulls back from Israel. Asa and the the people of Judah go up into the border territory and begin to build up the cities in there to kind of reclaim that land in the midst of it. It would seem that everything is going well. It's not, though. So God sends another prophet. This time he sends Hananiah the seer, and he came to Asa, the king of Judah, and said to him, because... You have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God. Therefore, the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. Which is a whole crazy story. I mean, in one sense, he doesn't even talk about Israel that it was oppressive. He says, you know, you you relied on the enemy and you should have defeated that enemy. Like, you could have defeated the Syrians. Like, if you trusted me, like, that could have happened, but instead you relied on them. And he reminds them that it hadn't already been that way. 20 years ago, he tells them, with the Ethiopians and the Lumen, they were a huge army, very many chariots and horsemen, yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hands. It's like, don't you remember what it was like when you trusted God? Did you remember what God did when you leaned on him? And then he shares what is one of the most famous verses in uh, Chronicles. You may or may not know that this is the background of it, but now you will. As he simply says it this way, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those who are loyal to him. Hey, pause there, and then we'll read the rest of it. What a good truth. This is who our God is. God doesn't change. What he was then, he is now. He says, God's eyes are looking from one end of the earth to the other, looking for people who would be loyal to him, looking for people who would trust in him, 
looking for people who would rely upon him. And he says, I want to be, I want to be strong for you. I want to give you power. I want to work behind you because you've trusted me. But Asa hasn't trusted him. Judah hasn't trusted him. So he gives us this great verse, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In this you have done foolishly. Asa, you've done a really dumb thing. <laughs> you've, done, you, you've done foolishly, like you've behaved foolishly because you've trusted the wrong thing. I would love it if the story now read that Asa repented, that he would be like, you know, you're right. I, I did the wrong thing. I'm so sorry. It would be a great story if that's what it, how it ended. It's just not how it ends. Tells Asa was angry with the seer and he put him in prison. So now he's going to arrest the prophet who's giving him the truth. For he was enraged at him because of this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at that time. This man who had done such good into the land now becomes a problem. Often that way. Turn away from God. You will become a problem to people as well. That's what happens for Asa. But the story gets worse. Three years later, tells us that in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet and his malady was severe. Yet... In his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. Okay, don't misunderstand this one. Again, make it very, very clear. It's not a problem that he went to the doctor. It's not a problem that he went to the physicians. It's not bad that you would go to a doctor or any of those things. Hey, that's common grace that God has given to this world. That's a good thing. The problem was he just didn't look to the God. He didn't look to God. The problem is now all he's going to trust in is what he can do. What, what he can do in his might, in his wisdom, and his knowledge, and his politics, and his money, and his power. And it just simply says it that way. Now, I might be mistaken, but I find myself wondering if God didn't say it this way because it could have gone differently. I find myself thinking of the book of James where it says, you have not because you ask not. There are things I would do, God says. There are things that I would do in your life, but you won't ask me. You won't ask me. I feel like this is what this is saying. It's like he didn't seek the Lord. You know, he, in his malady, he didn't turn to God. Instead, he just turned to more common things of the world. He can just trust it in what the world was, and Asa dies. This is the end of his life. I wish it wasn't. I wish it was just a different part of the story. I wish it didn't end this way. I don't know about you, but I'm just, again, trying to be honest. That terrifies me. I don't want that to be me. I don't want that to be the way I end my life. I don't want that to be the way my journey goes. I look on Asa, and I love his early days, and I'm terrified of his latter days. And, and I think, Lord, I, there should be a space that we get to look upon this and say, I don't want that to be me. I don't want it to be that I live the rest of my days trusting in my money, trusting in my politics, trusting in my persuasion, trusting in my personality, trusting in, in, in whatever is me. What a, what a dumb way to live your life. That would be foolish. When God, the God of the universe, his eyes are looking to and fro throughout the earth that he can say, I would give you power. I would show you, I would do a mighty work if you would trust in me. If you would look at, for, for, for me to work in the midst of that. So that's where we want to draw this to a conclusion this morning. Yeah, you can close your Bibles, your notebooks, wherever that is, because I feel like that story cements what I'm trying to say. We want, we, we want things that are mighty in God. We want, we want to fight what 
is before us. We want to deal with the battles before us trusting in God, looking to Him, looking to His resources and His power, not leaning on the things of the world, not trusting in those things because that would be our undoing and, and, and it would be miserable. And I would call you away from that. I would call you away from a life of that. I find myself thinking of a quote. Maybe I just, I'm just supposed to share it, so thought about it a couple times, so I'll just toss it out. He says, and whatever you do without God, you're either going to fail miserably or you're going to succeed even more miserably. And that's what Asa did. He was successful at the end of his life. It was a miserable success. It was a miserable success because he did it without God. And I would say, don't let that be you. May it be that God invites us to say, God, I, I, wanna, I, wanna, I wanna war, not with the world's weapons. I wanna take up what God is giving. So let's take a moment and pray. And wherever that's found you this morning, may it be that you just take a moment to respond to him. Hopefully the example of Asa in his early days is an example for you. That you would say, God, nothing's too hard for you. You, you can work with people who are weak or those who are mighty. It doesn't really matter. You're God. I want to depend upon you. I want to trust in you. I want to seek you. I want to walk in your ways. Maybe you need that example this morning. But maybe you need the latter days of Asa to scare you. To say, don't let it become you. Don't let it become one that you used to trust God. You used to look at him. And you're no longer doing it. May it be that in fresh ways we find ourselves thinking, I want, I want might in God. I want to see God move. I want to see him alive in the work and people and changing people and changing us in, in dynamic and real and glorious, real ways that he can do. So quietly between you and him, would you talk to him about that? And I'll do the same. Maybe it's a time for you to surrender your life to Christ again. Whatever that is, between you and God, talk about that and we'll come back and worship together in just a moment. God, thank you for the declaration of war, for the reminder that there is a war. Reminds us that it's there. May it stir us up. Much like that midnight ride of Paul Revere, that we hear the battles, we hear it approaching. But God, turn us away from just grabbing hold of worldly weapons, like Asa, trusting in politics, and money, and manipulation. Lord, what a, what, a, what a horrible way to face the realities that are around us, and they don't work. You've invited us to trust you. 
to, to take up the whole armor of God, which you've given us in Christ, and to go to battle in that. Thank you that it's, it's, it's more than enough. But Lord, I pray that you teach us and you grow us. Lord, I'm praying for everyone here, but just all together, honestly, I'm praying for me. God, I look on this and I want it. I want to trust you. I want to rely on you. I want to see you move. I want to see you work. I want those things which are mighty in you for the pulling down of strongholds, taking thoughts captive, bringing obedience. I want to see more of that. So teach us. Teach us to war with the the weapons that are yours, that are mighty in you. Show us how. Teach us to trust you and see all that you have. We ask for that. I'm asking for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. May God bring you into that and all that he has there. If you have questions, we're here. You can come up after the service, talk to us. If you don't know Jesus, again, we'd love to talk more about the gospel with you and help you understand your need for him. Right now, let's close in worship. So why don't you stand? We're going to worship our God and celebrate and long that he would bring us into this. And I just want to bless you in his name. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.